might, we might begin. Welcome to this afternoon's M Pavilion talk. If it feels good, build it. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Boon people, the traditional owners of the land we're gathered on, and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. Now, today's talk is all about how the design of healthcare spaces and devices can make you feel, change how you think, affect how you heal, and how motivated you are to participate in that process. The notion that design can change how you feel is nothing new. Think of the Chinese philosophy of Feng Shui. That's based on there being an inherent relationship between the mental and physical environment. And it's been dated back as far as 2,000 years. Some people date it even further back than that. What's it too? Yes. The Greeks and Romans aimed to, to create a feeling of harmony in their temples using symmetry and proportions inspired by the human form. But the notion that design can affect not just how you feel, but how you heal, is a lot more recent. In 1984, Roger Ulrich published his landmark paper, View Through a Window May, May Influence Healing from Surgery. In it, he compared two groups of people, people with the view of a brick wall and people with, with the view of nature, trees. He found that people with the view of trees not only recovered faster, but also required less pain relief and had more positive comments about their condition from the people looking after them. And so was born the concept of evidence-based design, the establishment of an irrefutable link between design and health. Now, in Melbourne, we're spoilt for examples of buildings that have been influenced by evidence-based patient-centric design. Take the Royal Children's Hospital, 2012 World Health Building of the Year, which is laid out like a townscape for easy wayfinding. That means navigating your way through the hospital where 80% of the rooms have got a parkland view and there's positive distractors like playgrounds and an aquarium. But the exciting, um, the exciting developments haven't just been in design. There have been equally exciting developments in science labs. The 2014 Nobel Prize for Medicine went to two groups of scientists who found brain cells that are specific for place, space and direction. So it seems that humans are actually wired to be affected by their surrounds. Now to join me to discuss our exciting work in this field, I'd like to introduce Julie Bernhardt, Professor at the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health, whose work focuses on how healthcare architecture and uh, environmental enrichment affects recovery from brain injuries, and Leah Heiss, who's an award-winning designer who de designs medical devices and also a lecturer at RMIT, and her work argues for there to be an open, collaborative relationship between art and design. My name is Hope Gates-Gavell. I'm a doctor at St Vincent's, specialising in emergency medicine, and before medicine, I worked in the arts primarily as a set designer. Now, Julie... When I think of hospital rooms, I think white walls, very clinical, very sparse. But your research suggests that this may not actually be the optimal kind of environment for recovery. Can you tell me about your work? Yeah, so I, I would say that we're in the early phase of working up the right kind of research models to interrogate the questions. Uh, but in terms of... And right now we're in, involved in a, a project partnering with uh, a VR company, Liminal, looking at colour and how it affects uh, people's moods. And we've, we've just finished data gathering on that. And in that experiment, we're looking at 
um, putting people into VR and seeing whether or not um, the colour in context makes a difference. So, for example, if you show people uh, a block of colour versus if you show people a waiting room in a hospital, which we would think has more stress related to it, compared to a room in your own home, um, what difference does it make to how you perceive it and how you feel? And these are sort of early experiments that will help with that colour issue. And one of the things that's really interesting about colour is that some of the um, standards that we have for colour are um, limited because of the fact that they need to be available uh, um, and... um, cope with bacterial infection, right? So we actually have colour palettes that are quite, in some ways, limited, especially in the hospital room. And so we need some research, I think, that helps inform that so that we can start to get companies to think about um, increasing the colour ways that are available for hospitals. So that's just one of the areas that we're working on at the moment. And so is that kind of use of colour in hospitals what you'd call an enriched environment? So when we talk about enriched environment, this is a concept that has come, um, is really dominant in um, animal literature. So if anyone works in science, you'll, and especially if you work with um, rodents or monkeys, or if you work at the zoo, you'll know that animals are actually are much happier, especially at the zoo, if their environment is enriched meaning that there are changing environments and novelty and stimulation. That makes animals happy. Uh, In rodents, which is where a lot of neuroscience experimentation happens, as you know, because it's what allows us to get a window into the cellular mechanisms of what's happening in the brain, there's really strong evidence that if you have animals housed in uh, what's called an enriched environment, which is, uh, allows for socialisation between the animals, um, has a lot of novelty, has increased space, that those animals will heal faster from a brain injury. That's crystal clear. The other thing that is really fascinating is that if you have a genetic disorder like Huntington's disease, which will trigger at some point and lead to disability, uh, animals housed in an enriched environment will also uh, have that delayed significantly. So it can change the genetics as well. So this is a the sort of epigenetic um, environmo-mimetic kind of conversation that happens. And I know that you know, jargon words, but essentially what it means is we're starting to realise the importance of the environment. When we translate that to humans, if you think of a typical hospital room, it's, it's uh, a person in a fairly denuded, uninteresting environment, with or without a view, and uh, the opportunities for socialisation and for novelty and for activity are limited. So the challenge for us as human researchers, which I am, is how do you translate this really interesting evidence that's in animals into the human setting? So that's some of the things that we're doing, and I can talk more about that if you want to later. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you've got these great findings in rodents now coming through with humans. How is that actually changing what's happening in hospitals in Australia? Well, at the moment, it's still in, uh, as you, and you'll know as well, there's a, there's a sort of time lag between what we know and how long it takes us to do our research. So we've probably been working in the enriched environment area with um, Heidi Jansen, who's a postdoctoral fellow of mine, um, for six years. 
and we're up to what's called a phase two study. So we've looked at trying to translate enrichment into hospitals um, and that is by adding personal enrichment packages and communal enrichment packages. So that's offering people things that are packages that they can take up themselves and also creating spaces in hospitals where people can go and have much more enriched and active, cognitively stimulating uh, activities. So when we did the first experiment, uh, we found that the um, proportion of time people spend sleeping in the day in hospitals, and these are people with stroke... Um, which is my main area of interest in the post uh, in the rehabilitation phase, that they spend a lot of time, a lot less time sleeping in the day, and more time socially active, more time cognitively cognitively active with this enrichment package, and that was really exciting. So that meant we went on. So now we're up to looking at um, the same kind of model in four different hospitals, two in New South Wales and two here in Victoria, and. Uh, seeing if we can extend that and also now that we've found these differences in what people do, we're now looking at whether it changes their actual outcome. So does it change how fast they recover? Does it change the extent to which they recover? So that's where we're at with this second phase of work and that'll be finishing probably about mid this year. So what that will give us at the end is it will give us some... And there's some other work that's actually been done in acute hospitals that's looking really promising as well. Same concept. So what does that, what does that mean? What does it, it, it means that we've got an enormous opportunity, I think, to capitalise on some of these findings and start to think about, OK, well, this is adding something in to something that already exists. What if we scrap that, start again, and think about how do we build that in in the first place. And, that, and that's what's exciting. And that's where some of our other work is around vir- virtually trying to think about that concept and how would we do it. And have people working in hospitals expressed whether they prefer the more virtual kind of stimulation or the more tactile, you hold in your hands kind of stimulation? What, what's the uptake like? You mean in terms of how, you stim- how people are stimulated within the hospital? Yeah. Uh, we're not using fancy stuff like virtual reality. Some people are as, as adjuncts. There's some really interesting research um, happening now looking at virtual reality and pain in people with um, pain and cancer. Uh, and that's interesting because it's immersive and it's giving them a distraction. We ha- we've gone for, uh, at the moment, much more low-cost, low-tech kinds of um, things because even listening to music and this is fascinating to me as a neuroscientist that if you listen to your preferred music after you've had a brain injury for at least an hour a day uh, you can show demonstrable improvements in a in randomized controlled trials so that's where you've got this controlled arm that you can randomize the same kinds of people into those trials that if people listen to just to music uh, you can get changes in cognitive function so your memory your attention and they're quite significant changes and improvements so even music listening as part of the package is uh, what is fascinating so right now you just add in lots of elements into a package um, later I think it'll be really interesting to tease out which bits are the most um, important and what do you think is the biggest challenge for this into the future? I think um, we're doing work with 
a really strong interdisciplinary group now and we've been doing this for a number of years. So we have architects and designers and wayfinders and policy people and patients and uh, clinicians. That's the fun part. Um, the challenge of talking to that interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary group, which is I think what we have to do to make improvements, is um, just getting us all on the same page. We actually had to have a glossary at one of our last research um, endeavours because... Uh, and we had to have a buzzer, which was if you use jargon, you get buzzed out. Because let's face it, uh, if we're trying to all speak to each other, we all have our own lingo. That was actually very effective. Um, so I think for, for us, we have to take... It, it's a slow and steady kind of thing. Um, if we can get to really important design changes that need to be made that can be underpinned by evidence, then we've got opportunity to influence current standards and, and maybe even opportunity to influence the next set of designs as um, hospitals come online. But it, it's a bit of a long trajectory, but that's fine. Very interesting. Now, Leah, your work is more about empowering people outside of the hospital setting through the design of devices, people with chronic illnesses. Why is this so important? It's funny because I, um, I don't know if that works. Uh, oh yeah, actually, you have Because <laughs> um, I was just listening to Julie, and I, I would really like to talk about the devices. But um, for the whole of 2016, I spent a year in a cancer hospital with a whole group of students, um, looking at the design environment and the impact that it had on the way that people react emotionally through that cancer experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, design environment and the notion of the package is really, really interesting and the way that it can recognise personhood, which is, you know, engaging with the unique experience of an individual as they're going through this experience. And I think the, the kind of findings that we had, so this is my students out there, um, was that a lot of it actually could be about small-scale interventions, it could be programmatic, it didn't need to be about changing architecture. It could actually be about, you know, in integration of the gardening program or whatever those things might be. But it was about finding a place and having something to do and engaging in an emotional and physical um, and social way with other people in that environment. Yeah, so I thought, um, I, I will go into the gadgets now, but I was just, yeah, I thought the spaces, because that's where my teaching is, is in the spaces, and then my practice is in the technologies. Um, so the question, sorry. My question, and thank you for your insights, it's really interesting hearing you bounce things off each other, um, and so important from what I see day to day, people are bored in hospitals, and, and that kind of work it has a huge impact. No one wants to be in hospital, and if someone does want to be in hospital, it makes me really worried about what's going on in, at home. Um, so, yeah, my question about devices was, <laughs> you're using your device design to empower people with chronic illnesses yep. outside of the hospital setting or main, mainly chronic illnesses. Yep. Why is it so important to have designs that people engage with, devices that people engage with? Yeah. So it's interesting. I, I don't think about chronic illness. I just... So when you think about hearing loss, we don't think about hearing loss as a chronic illness, but that's the project I've been doing for the last two years is designing the world-first modular hearing aid. And it's about shifting disability to desirability, about sort of saying, actually, rather than having something that keeps me well and healthy over there that's a disabled beige thing that I really hate and something that I really love, which is, you know, I like my dinosaur design bangles or I like my little earrings that I got for my husband or I like my wedding ring. Um, maybe it's about fusing these types of things so that we can use nanotechnologies or microelectronics to augment 
things that we actually like. So you have things that you like and you have an emotional relationship with, but they also keep you well and healthy. And so I think it's that thing where we no longer, we have the, we have the smarts to bring these things together. And for me, it's about um, destigmatizing. So uh, I'm in the middle of writing my PhD, which is a terrible time. But um, I was writing it and I was thinking, I was writing these words and I thought, all these words, all these stupid words, what are they actually about? And I said, what they're actually about is, as a designer, engaging with the person, you know, personhood, the person at the end of that design process who might be six years away and inhabiting their experience and saying, what is it? You know, do they feel ashamed? Do they feel embarrassed? Do they feel stigmatised? Do they have to go to the bathroom and, and inject? Because it's too, it's too shameful to do in public because they're going to look like a druggie. Um, you know, what are those emotions and feelings that people have when they're using medical technologies? And how, we can, how can we start to shift that by, you know, whether it's like making things look more like jewellery or making things look more like an iPhone, more like a, a computer, more like something kind of cool that you might have in your handbag. It's just a new augmented technology. Yeah. So it sounds like a very different design process to a traditional design process. Yeah. Can you tell me maybe a bit about how you've used that with the development of the hearing aids you've been working on? Yeah, so the, the huge difference, and this probably applies to the hospital setting as well, is that usually design's bought in at the beginning and sort of towards the end. So in device design, you've got like, you might have six years of research to get the science in place, and then you've got this box, and then a designer's brought in to put a nice covering or a textile around the box, and then the box goes to the public, and the public go, that's a really shit box. You know, like, whereas... <laughs> or, um, or user engagement in a hospital, and then you do this bit of research, and then you build something, and then you're like, oh, well, actually the courtyard is deadly to someone who has a disease. Um, so with the hearing aid, I had this unique opportunity to be embedded in the design process for 37 weeks. So usually you have six weeks. So biotechnologies or... Um, the kind of design that I do, which was sort of medical design, you usually have six weeks of design at the beginning and then you hand it over to microelectronic engineers and mechanical engineers. And you say, okay, that's enough of that user engagement business. Now we're going to build it. And a whole lot of decisions get made in that building. You make it bigger, you make it chunkier, you make it sharper, you make it beige, and then you give it to people and they're a bit like, oh, it's, I have to use it, otherwise I'm going to die, but I don't really want to. But through being there for 37 weeks, what I call at the table, having a designer at the table in the development of health technologies, means that every single week I'm there saying, actually, it is really important that, that we keep it small. You know, it is really important that those edges are softened. It's really important that it looks beautiful. And sort of one example of that was, um, so I'm on a team with, well, for the whole of last year I was on a team with um, microelectronics engineers and mechanical engineers and systems processing engineers and audiologists. And, and we got to a point where they said, oh, it's fine, we can have any colour, but you can't have shiny. Yeah? And, and I was like... And, and they were like, so let's move on, uh, agenda item 42. And I was like, no, 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 we've got to go back there because the whole premise for the technology was let's make it jewel-like and beautiful. Let's, let's trick the brain into going, oh, isn't that beautiful? And I was inspired by the geological collections at Mount Museum. Beautiful things that are crystalline and faceted that you actually want to wear. And then you put them on and you feel complete trust. And you're like, oh, that's okay. You know, I believe in the, in the meds and the tech. 
But actually that first instinct isn't about loathing and fear, it's about you know, love and desire. Making devices that won't just end up in a drawer beside someone while they continue to have trouble hearing. That's right. And as you know, if you don't use hearing aids early, then you know, there's correlations, and you're the doctor here and you're the doctor, but you know, all the research I've been reading is, is the correlation with Alzheimer's and dementia over the long term. So if you don't use it, you lose it. Um, so yeah, so starting to sort of mix that up and say, and so that, the reason I brought that up was that um, the rest of the team were like, this isn't a biggie, but I'm like, that's a biggie, you know, it doesn't seem like it to anyone else, but I'm here on behalf of all those people that aren't here at the table. And I say as a human-centred designer that it is a biggie, we need to think about how it feels and how it, how it, how it feels, how it looks, you know, what it, how heavy it is, like all those little things. And have people actually had the chance to try them out? Yeah, so they're being beta tested at the moment, which means they're out in the field and we've got a whole range of people testing them and using them. Um, And not all of the design is about beauty, like um, a lot of it is about functionality and it's about kind of recognising, I don't know if anyone's ever tried to change a battery in a hearing aid, but it's really hard. Like as a fully functioning person with, you know, reasonably sharp fingernails, you know, we try and open it up and, it's, and you drop it and, you know, and so it's a really difficult process and actually to design a, an intuitive modular magnetic situation that just finds its battery is going to make a big difference. Um, so people are, are testing all those things and it'll launch in March 5th. Yep. Amazing. Yeah, if you know anyone that needs a hearing aid, <laughs> it's really lovely. <laughs> but this isn't sales. Are they waterproof? Yeah. Oh, oh so I'm being facetious. Oh, are you? Yeah, no, nano-coated. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So you can waterproof things in a nano... Awesome. It's a nanometer co- coating over it. That, that, my, my dad would love that. He just keeps jumping in the water with his hearing aids. Mmm, deadly. Yeah. Deadly. I'm not sure about diving <laughs> or... <laughs> I'm not sure if we're talking... But, but even in the rain. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> can I ask a question of you? Yeah, um, the importance of... Obviously, you're there with your design framework, but also very much with the consumer in mind. What do you think or what's been your experience of um, really good consumer engagement? So what do the models look like that allow you to get that information that you need as a, as a designer or have them at the table. So, mm. you know, often they're not there. Same with um, hospital design and other facilities. They're often just not there. So we, we continue to design things without the consumers at the table that we're trying to design them for. So what's worked for you or what do you think is a good model? Um, what, the other thing I find interesting in hospital consultation is that you have the well-behaved people there. Yeah, and that's what I found in sure. the cancer hospital. So, so I said, well, who, who do you bring to the consultation process? And they well, we've got this really nice guy who always agrees with everything, and this other well-behaved, mature gentleman who's got a good educational background. Um, but what I found really useful is, um, is focus groups, and um, Shanti, who's there, I draw a lot from Sarah Pink's idea of the interview being a place-making experience and where everything comes into it. It's not just this person is in a void and a vacuum and I will extract information from them and put them into my design process. It's actually, you're a person, you're here and you're sharing with me and the more props we have around, the better. And so I ran five user engagement sessions for the hearing aid and um, two in aged care for the smart heart, which is a cardiac halter monitor necklace. And actually going and being there and 
my husband laughs because I keep explaining that it's the biscuits and the coffee and the cake and like it's everything that makes this situation so that people feel comfortable and that they will share their insights because you're not wanting the tidy insights you're wanting the ones that are you know where the tears come to the eyes and they say I just can't do this like it I tried to change it in the cinema and I lost the battery and and then I missed the rest of the film or the elderly person that says actually it's too hard so I'm just going to not change the battery I don't change the battery and I wait till my son comes on Monday and so from Friday to Monday I have no sound no interaction no conversation and you can if you engineer interviews you can make them really tidy so you only get the bits that you want which is like you know or they wanted it to be like this and they want it to be this color and it goes in a bag but actually if you I don't I'm all about empathy but actually being there and sharing sharing my fallibility like this is hard it's complex it's tricky it's my experience and setting up a situation and a scene where people can bring their experiences and use whatever those props might be to to share that. And then I mean those five interviews turned into 237 pages of transcripts. And so PhD. No, well, yeah. Out of your page. But that, that's just transcripts. So yeah. so then the complexity with that is like what you know about that like how do you crunch that? And the way that I do that is um is I take portraits of people and at different moments when they're sharing information and then I I pull out their quotes of really important bits and I overlay them and and I just try and um create disfluency and all that data so that I can so it becomes a little bit stickier so I can actually use but it's a continual challenge yeah. I agree. so for both of you it sounds like design and uh the environment the design of the environment can have huge impact on people with an illness uh whether it's long term or a short term illness but I guess one of the challenges for healthcare designers is that they've got other populations of people that they have to consider I'm thinking more about hospitals and individually used devices in this in this way. So there are visitors to consider. There's the hospital staff, there's the clerks, the cleaners, the nurses, the doctors, people who are there every day, day in, day out, normally for longer than what that what they want to be. I love my job and I feel like it's a really huge privilege to get to do the job that I do. I've worked in a lot of different on a lot of different wards and I've worked in many different hospitals basically doing the same job every time in some spaces i feel really light really energized really positive really competent and i do exactly the same job with exactly the same skill set in another hospital and feel almost depressed and flustered and just can't wait for the day to end so gearing up to this talk i started having a think about what what are the things that really change how i feel and i think probably do change how i function within those spaces and there's two things that jump out at me The first is easy wayfinding, so navigating your way through a hospital, and the second is lighting. And what's really interesting about both of these is that they seem to be things that both staff and patients value, but possibly for different reasons. So if we think about